This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. This week, overshadowed by geopolitical concerns with the United States withdrawing from Afghanistan. And of course, Tim, the Delta variant stoking more fears with COVID cases rising. President Biden urging all unvaccinated Americans who are eligible to do it now. It's not just those who haven't been vaccinated, Carol. The White House also saying that booster shots for both people who have received Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, they should be taken about eight months after one got that second dose. So while we are still waiting to hear guidance on recipients from the Johnson Johnson shot, expect to start to see people who got those mRNA vaccines getting those boosters come September. I'm looking at my calendar. I'm marking my yeah. calendar. You when still do got I go? a few more months. I still have a few more months, right? But we're all kind of just figuring out, all right, when do we get that booster shot? Yeah. As for markets, bit of a mixed bag for retail earnings this week. Retail traders as well, with Robinhood disappointing after releasing its first results since going public. If you want to know more, just check out the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com. Yeah, a little hint, though. Strong revenue coming from crypto, but <laughs> Big the company hint. warning of seasonality when it comes to trading patterns. So yeah, check out the terminal for more on that. Meanwhile, a strong second quarter for pet store owner and operator Petco. We're going to talk to the CEO, Ron Coughlin, all about the numbers and his new colleague in the C-suite. All right. Yep. And just a little hint there. Uh, people are still buying lots of stuff for their pets. We're also going to catch up with renowned civil rights activist Laura Murphy and her transition from the ACLU to navigating the corporate world and how she is helping other companies, Tim, track racism at uh, their institutions. Yeah, what she's done is she's developed a new audit method to get companies to confront their own roles in perpetuating racial disparities. We're going to talk about the results at the likes of Facebook and Airbnb. Yeah, exactly. She spent a lot of time with both companies. All that to come, we begin with a look at this week's issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. The cover story, you're going to hear a little bit more later on about it. It's all about entry-level wages on Wall Street. Big-name investment banks are doling out unprecedented salaries to help attract new talent, but younger workers are demanding more of a work-life balance and balking 100-hour work weeks. Can I tell you one of the things I love about this story is essentially how the older guys on Wall Street, the former CEOs, are like, uh, this is what it's supposed to be about. You put in a lot of time up front and then you kind of reap the rewards in later years. That's just how it works. In fact, one person uh, that <laughs> Sri Natarajan spoke to for this story said, I would have paid to get the experience that I got in one my One person. Early You're talking years. about Lloyd Blankfein. Yeah, I know. I am. A very important person. Yeah. I didn't want to give too much away, Carol. But it is interesting. You think about different occupations. If you go to be a doctor, it's, you know, so difficult in those early years, right? You're, you know, uh, on shifts all the time, you're barely getting sleep, and then you reap the rewards later. I mean, I think that's true for a lot of occupations. I think it is too. And I think the difference that we're seeing right now is the remote work element. And so many of these uh, young employees were working remotely and isolated for such a long period of time when mm -hmm. the deal started to come in. And I think that there is something to be said about the camaraderie that happens in a workplace when people are physically there. Another story that uh, you should definitely check out in the magazine, get ready for the SPAC attack. SPACs, uh, the companies they take public, 
we know that that has been one of the big trends. They're not new, but they really took off again in the last year, year and a half or so. They're already becoming a feeding ground, though, for short sellers and activist shareholders uh, apparently aren't far behind, so says our Scott DeVoe. Yeah, as of July 16th, Carol, total short interest in active SPAC securities hit more than $2.3 billion. That's up more than threefold from the start of the year. That's according to data compiled by S3 Partners. One other element of this is that SPACs traditionally and in general have this 24-month period where they have to go and find a company to buy. They have to put that money to use that they've raised from investors. Right. So as we do get to the you know, 12, 18, 24-month mark out from when these companies and these SPACs have raised money, what do the companies then look like that they end up going to buy? The clock is kind of ticking. So do we see this trend continue where investors say, wait a second, I don't think the company that you bought is up to snuff. We're going to short that position. So that's a good story to check out. The other thing is I always like... Um, you love... I know what you're going to say, Carol. Pursuits. I knew you were going to say you love pursuits. I do too. You know, it's just fun things that are going on in our world. We all need, uh, you know, to kind of spread out some of our readings. We get uh, kind of dragged down in a lot of the COVID stuff. I thought COVID you were going to say we all need to go on a journey on one of these <laughs> ayahuasca trips. This vacation is a real trip. That's the cover of Pursuits. And it's talking about psychedelic experiences are beginning to play an integral role at uh, luxury resorts. It's not just about massages and body scrubs. <laughs> but it is about wellness, Carol. Yes. And, and that's, I think, a really important theme here. And they're not, they, the people who do these don't necessarily like to call them quote unquote trips, right? They mm-hmm. want to call them journeys. They want these to be mm-hmm. guided experiences. And the idea is for it to be holistic. And I think we're seeing a lot of experimentation with these substances and to what extent they actually do make someone feel better. It's all about spiritual healing and metaphysical self-discovery of guided plant-based psychedelic experiences. Uh, And they are called, we know, trips, but uh, most practitioners prefer the term, as you said, journey. You read this story. I read the story, yeah. I liked it. Um, I liked it a lot. (laughs) Or you took a trip. No, I did not. I did not. Um, But it is interesting to see this and regulations change around this Yeah, and where you can actually legally do this. Hey, and one other thing in Pursuits by Hannah Elliott. She covers all things cars for us here at Pursuits. She profiles the individual who helps billionaires and manufacturers get their collectibles delivered on time. When they're buying some high-end cars, whether they bought them at auction or what have you, she's the person who actually makes the delivery. Yeah, if you've got a million-dollar Ferrari or perhaps a Bugatti and you want to get it from (laughs) California to Florida, this is the person to call. Yeah, exactly. So be sure to check out the new issue of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It's online at Bloomberg.com, on newsstands and on the Bloomberg terminal. Coming up, a man who predicted the need for COVID booster shots months ago is now seeing his words come to fruition. We get the latest on vaccine durability in the next chapter of this pandemic from Access Health International Chair and President Dr. William Hasseltine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Back in May, our next guest said he expected the need for COVID vaccine booster shots despite their high rate of effectiveness against the virus. Well, now his prediction, it's coming true yeah. with the pandemic still raging, Tim. We know that and variants putting more lives at risk, even those who have been inoculated. This week, the Biden administration unveiled its plan for vaccine boosters starting in September for eligible recipients eight months clear of their second dose of the Moderna or Pfizer vaccines. My administration has been planning for this possibility in this scenario for months. We purchased enough vaccine and vaccine supplies so that when your eight-month mark comes up, you'll be ready to get your vaccination free, that booster shot free, and we have it available. 
Now, Dr. William Hazeltine is back with us to tell us what's next when it comes to the fight against COVID-19. He also lays out a plan to deal with the trauma that we've experienced throughout the pandemic. He's got another book out, Carol, and it focuses on the effects of what he calls CV PTSD. I think it's very clear now, and that's why the government has moved the way it is. It's very clear now that to protect against serious illness, where most people are going to need a booster. They've pegged that at about eight months. It's probably about right for most people. For people who are older, it's probably a little shorter than that. Six months will do. Uh, and so I would stand by my statement that six months from my last vaccine, I'm certainly planning to get another booster. And, and I think the government's official recommendation now is every adult uh, get a booster beginning eight months from the last uh, vaccination. This isn't magic. This is kind of like the flu. I mean, this right. isn't new to us. We think every year we have to get a new flu, flu vaccine. I don't know what's so special about this, why people are so surprised. Yeah, and every few years we do have to get boosters for, for other vaccines as well. I mean, I, I, sure. we certainly have yeah. to do that. Uh, I, I think perhaps the, the question that people would have about this is, is it specifically related to the Delta variant? Or is it the durability of the vaccine declines regardless of whether or not we're being hit with new variants? Uh, you know, that's a good question. The answer is yes to both. Huh. Uh, Delta is better at evading the vaccines, but as time goes on, the vaccines will wane in effectiveness against all variants, even the original ones. So that's to be expected. You know, if you go back and look at what I was writing a year ago, I was predicting that any vaccine that would be developed would be of relatively short duration. That's because we have a lot of experience with viruses like this, particularly the flu. I think the more people start thinking about this as a very dangerous virus like the flu, much more like the flu than anything else, the better off we'll be. Something that has to be observed will come back every year, maybe twice a year. The odd thing about this one is coming back in the United States in the summer and the winter. And so it's a little different in that respect. It's more lethal. So we've got to be more careful, but we've probably got to keep up with our vaccines every six months to every year. That's not terrible, but it's not it's not the best news, but it's not the worst either. Vaccines are still only approved under emergency use authorization for people over the age of 12. How do we get past this pandemic, especially as kids go back to school when millions of children cannot be vaccinated? We start vaccinating our children as soon as possible. How soon can and that I be? I think that's going to, I think that uh, once the results are in, I'm pretty confident that this vaccine will be safe for children, but until you've done the studies, you don't know. I know our government is working as fast as possible to get those studies done. I hope it's done, let's say, by Thanksgiving. I would certainly hope so. And I think by that time, we'll have um, actual approval for the uh, Moderna and the uh, Pfizer vaccines. We'll have a real approval, not just emergency use authorization. Do you think that we'll have uh, approval for or emergency use authorization for 12 to ages zero to 12, or does it start with like well, five to 12? I don't know when it's zero, or... but it's maybe three or two to, tw to uh, 12, yes. Okay. I think that's what we're heading for. I know that people are working as hard as they can to get that data so they can, uh, if possible, if it proves to be safe, uh, to go ahead and do it. And uh, my guess is it looks like it will be safe. Well, look, it has been a tough year for many, many people not just specifically because of COVID, if they got it, or even if they didn't get it, perhaps they've suffered from what you describe as uh, CVPTSD. You write that it encompasses the full effects 
of all that we've endured over the past year and a half manifested daily in rising rates of depression, anxiety, and drug addiction, and the ongoing loss of uh, academic opportunities for the young. I wonder how we get past this if you say that COVID is going to be endemic like the flu. How do we get past COVID PTSD? Well, the first thing we have to recognize that it exists both for individuals and actually for the whole society. Uh, in addition to the normal stresses that we undergo, this has been a, a tremendous economic stress. It's been a stress of fear of getting the disease. There's been a lot of conflicting messages, uh, both uh, official conflicting messages and unofficial conflicting messages. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's like the perfect storm for creating stress and anxiety. And if you look at the numbers of people who report uh, anxiety, it's uh, close to 50%. People who uh, report uh, uh, depression, much, much higher. A lot of young people are feeling especially stressed. Now, what can you do about it? As I say, the first thing is to recognize it. You know, we didn't recognize combat post-traumatic stress disorder until 1980. We called it shell shock or malingering. We had all sorts of names for it. Once we had a name for it and we recognized what it was, we began to develop treatments. And there's a very well-developed treatment program uh, and paradigm for post-traumatic stress disorder. The Veterans Administration uses it all the time. And it involves counseling, recognition of what's happened. And then uh, there's sometimes uh, some drugs that help. But you know, I would say for what's happening now, Let's take just schools, for example. All the kids are going back to schools. The teachers are stressed, and they're going to be dealing with a lot of stressed children. I think we have to support our teachers and our children with additional social work and psychiatric social work in our schools, because that's where we're going to see it first. Uh, as the children go back to school, they're going to be learning problems. There'll be behavioral problems. Uh, they can manifest themselves as uh, People who are totally withdrawn or totally unruly, you get both extremes uh, as a result of this. And we're going to have to recognize it as more and more people get back to work. I think many big businesses are going to have to help their employees with uh, special counseling. And it's, it's going to be really important to do that to get over this, both as an individual and as a society. That was Dr. William Hazeltine, the chairman and president of Access Health International. Coming up next, two survivors of sexual assault are helping to reverse an unpopular policy at Airbnb, why the platform is changing its ways and how a recent Business Week cover story, Tim, definitely, I gotta say, played a role. Yeah, when we talk about impact journalism, this was certainly mm -hmm. an example of that. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. 
So several weeks ago, a Bloomberg Businessweek cover story broke down how the popular rental home platform Airbnb makes nightmares go away. The company's 10,000-word terms of service agreement has for years included a mandatory arbitration clause that prevented victims of violent crimes that take place in Airbnb listings from holding the company responsible. But that's about to change. Bloomberg Technology reporter Olivia Carvel has been all over this from the start. Her cover story shed light on some of the rare but chilling incidents that have taken place on the company's watch. And her follow-up spotlights a pair of sexual assault survivors that are spurring a key policy reversal. These two women are incredibly brave. One is Sherry Dooley. She's a 55-year-old woman from Portland, Oregon. She's a food truck worker, and she traveled down to Colima in Mexico, where she says she was raped by an intruder who climbed through a window that wouldn't lock in the Airbnb apartment that she had rented. The second woman is Natalie White. She's 23. She's from Atlantic City in New Jersey, and she says that during a stay in an Airbnb property in February of this year, as she was packing up her belongings to leave, the host arrived at the property and sexually assaulted her. He pinned her down, he tried to tear her clothes off as she tried to resist him. Both of these women filed lawsuits against Airbnb in recent months. And what was their experience though in terms of dealing with the company after those assaults? Well, the company has a an elite safety team that um, immediately activates to help survivors when things go wrong inside their listings. So the company did support both of these women. They helped pay for their flights home. They refunded the trips. They offered health counseling costs. Sounds really great. Yeah, it does. And then, you know, Months later, after the attack, when they're dealing with the PTSD and thinking about what happened and questioning Airbnb's role in all this, both women decided that they they did want to file claims against the company for damages. But what is the fine print when you agree Mm -hmm. to stay in an Airbnb about how Airbnb is held liable? Yeah, and that's the crux of this whole story, is that buried inside the 10,000 word terms of service agreement that every user who has ever signed up for the platform signed. Look, I've used Airbnb. I didn't ever read it, and right? You right. click it and you agree to it. So do I. Because um, you have to, right, in order to use the service. You have Any to. service. Right. And, exactly, right. and this isn't just an Airbnb thing. It's when you sign up for apps online, there's terms of service agreements that you sign. The problem is, is that they're 40 pages long, and who has time to read through them when you just want to book a property for a holiday? So, you know, both of these women signed that terms of service without realizing that it comes with a binding arbitration agreement. Mm-hmm. What that means is that if there's any dispute with the company, any problem that arises during a stay, you cannot file damages in court. You are forced to arbitrate. And arbitration means it's handled behind closed doors. It's not in the courts. It is not in the public eye. And to be fair, Airbnb, in terms of binding arbitration, not the only (laughs) company, certainly in corporate America, that does this. We've talked a lot about financial community, right, that that uses this. It's kind of a common practice, uh, it seems, at a lot of companies, uh, once you either are employed there, right, in terms of your your rights going forward. In this case, though, it sounds like Airbnb, because of these women, because of your reporting, kind of had a change of thought. 
Yeah, that's right. And mandatory arbitration has been a flashpoint in corporate America ever since the Me Too movement. We've seen a lot of companies change their arbitration agreements, particularly when it comes to sexual assault cases, Mm -hmm. because advocates say that if you're going to push a survivor into arbitration and not allow her to access the public court system, you are in a way silencing her voice. Olivia, this reporting, it's read, it's seen, it's heard far and wide since you did that cover story for Bloomberg Business Week a few months ago about this elite safety team. I'm wondering what you've heard from survivors in the wake of this, what you've heard from sources, what you've heard from from companies as you've continued to report this out. I think for companies, it's been a a wake-up call. Um, A lot of other organizations in the short-term rental space have been following closely to the coverage, and some have actually changed their own internal policies. Mm. We saw Expedia and TripAdvisor both update their policies around the key exchange process, Mm -hmm. which is how hosts and guests exchange keys to say that cannot be done in a public place, because we reported about a young woman who was raped when a man obtained a spare set of keys to the Airbnb she was staying in. So I think from the corporation sense they have been you know listening and reading these stories and doing what they can to try and you know strengthen their safety policies from the survivor standpoint I think that for a lot of these women it's um, the feeling like they're they're being heard and some of them felt like the way the company's policies were set up particularly around forced arbitration that it did silence their voice. And that was Bloomberg News technology reporter Olivia Carvel with more great reporting on Airbnb and a story that continues to evolve thanks in part to her coverage. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Up next, we'll talk to the former director of the ACLU Legislative Office and a former advisor to Airbnb, Laura Murphy. She discusses her efforts to get companies to confront their role in perpetuating racial disparities. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week And this is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Corporate America has been taking a hard look at itself over the last year. And while progress in diversifying the ranks has been slow, there is a new tool for getting companies to confront their role in perpetuating racial disparities. Our next guest has spent her decades-long career navigating politics and policy, but now she's using her talent to moderate conflicts between companies and advocates who criticize those companies' impact on racial and social justice. She's emerged as a pioneer of what's been called the Corporate Civil Rights Audit. Laura Murphy is president. President of Laura Murphy and Associates, also the former director of the legislative office at the American Civil Liberties Union. Murphy was featured in a story by Naomi Nix in the previous issue of Bloomberg Business Week that detailed her two-year audit of Facebook. And we began our conversation by discussing her time with Airbnb, which, as you know, we just had that conversation with Olivia Carvel. Uh, the company just announced plans to allow victims of sexual assaults and harassment in its listings to sue the company by lifting that long-standing mandatory arbitration clause in its terms of service. Well, I think it goes um, it go it, it goes a long way toward the California statute um, that um, allows women to sue under various circumstances. Um, I think it's an outgrowth of the Me Too movement. Um, I know that in talking to civil rights leaders, they would like um, the mandatory arbitration clauses to be listed uh, for race discrimination and other types of claims as well. 
And so um, it's a start for civil rights leaders, but it, I think, you know, it's a welcome start, but I don't think it's going to satisfy all the critics. It's interesting that you say that. There was a Bloomberg Businessweek investigation cover story that talked a lot about some of the crimes, violent crimes that have gone on and, and how a lot of people have been prevented from talking about it. I, you know, I want to dig deeper on and, and kind of your last thought there. I mean, how did we get here in the corporate world of having such bad policies on a lot of important issues, especially when it comes to civil rights? I just think um, there's a tremendous lack of awareness, and it's not necessarily intentional, but I don't think we get um, very good education generally in um, in civics in terms of rights and liberties and what they mean um, in this country. And I also think that, um, so there's a lack of awareness, but I also think it's so commonplace that it doesn't stop you from becoming a billionaire, um, not having a background and understanding of how policies and practices may exclude certain people based on their race or their religion or their sexual orientation, et cetera. So it's, it's just a fact of life, it's, and, and that's why I think corporate uh, civil rights audits are needed because there are just too many people in positions of power who aren't aware of the laws. And if you ask them, okay, what are, what are my values? Mm-hmm. Do you value treating people equally and all of that? People will give the right answers. But where the where the rubber meets the road is is in the implementation of those values. So I think a lot of corporations embrace these values, but they don't test their products to make sure that they don't violate the values. For example, there's a lot of concern about facial recognition software and the fact that it was tested on white men. And so right. it really doesn't work on people of, of different races. And even there are some gender differences. So before these products are released to market, they should be tested across a range of characteristics so that people are not selling products that, that harm people. I mean, facial right. recognition is used by policing, you know, entities. And so this this has dire consequences if it's not right. What is a corporate civil rights audit? A corporate civil rights audit is an independent analysis of a company's business practices um, to identify and correct practices that may have a discriminatory effect. And that could be with their customers, with their employees, with everything? With everything. It could be the products that they sell, uh, you know, is a, is a mortgage product, you know, sold by a bank going to have a different impact on one community than it has on another, un- an unfair and different impact. Um, so, yes, it's products, it's personnel, it's company values, it's an assessment. Uh, a civil rights audit first assesses how these different um, how the different verticals within a company are affecting people and whether or not they're having a discriminatory impact and whether or not there's a remedy uh, for them and what that remedy is. Laura, talk to me about your time at Facebook because you spent several years with them. I'm always curious when you first go into a company, 
why do they bring you in? And, you know, what's the initial conversations you have with management that maybe tell you that they're way off the mark? Well, um, I was brought in because I was suggested by um, civil rights leaders as someone who could help Facebook um, uh, address a multitude of concerns that had been voiced over the years by different um, civil rights organizations and um, ranging from religious groups to LGBTQ groups to African-American groups to people with disabilities, all of that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, there was there was a, a growing frustration in the overarching civil rights community with Facebook. And, um, y- you know, I think a lot of the staff wanted the company to address these issues in a much more substantive way. Um, I was greeted um, with enthusiasm by many of the middle managers who had been fielding these concerns for years, and it took some time to get the attention of the upper leadership. But once we did get their attention, we really got down to business and I started meeting with leaders in different verticals and, um, you know, people who created products, people who were responsible for advertising and marketing, people who were responsible for uh, enforcing the community standards. Um, It was a multi-year, multi-pronged product where we looked at the impact of these products and policies and practices on different constituencies and users of Facebook. And we found that there were some discrepancies in how people were treated. And again, um, this was a very um, consultative process. This was not an antagonistic process. This was uh, me saying, okay, you've got the following three Mm -hmm. allegations. Let's find out if they're true. If they're true, what do you want to do about them? Um, And these are my recommendations. What are your recommendations? And, you know, a process of consultation to to fix problems. I I like to see myself as a uh, as a problem solver, not someone who just identifies problems. Right, right, uh, which is much more productive, right, ultimately, in trying to figure out, okay, how do we get from maybe point A to point Z, uh, if you will. Hey, tell us a little bit about a meeting that you put, to, that you helped, I guess, the conversation between Facebook executives and civil rights groups. Kara, I'm going to answer that question. Um, but I want to say something about the process being productive. This is a far more productive process than having a regulation come down from a federal agency mm-hmm. or litigation. Um, results happen sooner. You're not in. You're not caught in antagonism. You know that keeps you warring with each other. Right. Uh, you're not caught up in the machinations of the legal system. So. I think this is a preferable process to some of the other processes that have been used over the years to advance civil rights. Now, I think civil rights litigation is important and lawsuits are important and regulation are important. I'm not saying I'm anti any of that. Right. Actually worked for a lot of those laws to come to fruition. But I am saying in terms of 
really attacking the problems with a level of immediacy. This is, I think this is a good way to go. That's Laura Murphy, the president of Laura Murphy and Associates, also former director of the ACLU Legislative Office. She's also a senior advisor to Airbnb. And that wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Coming up in our next hour, our cover story, a wage war has broken out on Wall Street as top investment banks vie for the best young talent. But in some cases, six-figure salaries, well, they're not enough for this next generation of junior bankers. Who are definitely in the driver's seat when it comes to jobs right now. When you are the best and everyone's falling over each other to get a hold of you, you have a bunch of options and finance necessarily isn't the number one choice for you. And that is why the banks have to do everything in their ability to make sure that talent still comes towards their way and not just talent, the top talent. Plus, we'll take a look at the continued acceleration in the pet care category. We're all buying lots of stuff for Fido. Petco CEO Ron Coughlin stopping by to talk about a strong second quarter for customer growth. We're also going to gear up for the return of one of New York City's most star-studded comedy events with Caroline Hirsch of Caroline's on Broadway. Talk about somewhat of a return to normalcy, Carol. Exactly. Love that. And preparing your business for everything, especially the unexpected. We'll have that as well. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stanovec. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including the CEO of Petco. He talks about his company's 11th consecutive quarter of revenue growth. Also a taste for normalcy for those looking for laughs. Caroline's on Broadway is preparing for the return of the New York City Comedy Festival. Later this year, we're going to hear from the club's founder and owner, Caroline Hirsch. First up this hour, this week's cover story of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. It was also one of the most read stories on the Bloomberg Terminal this week. It's about Wall Street breaking out the money cannon in the race to bring in junior bankers. And apparently, six-figure salaries, well, they are not always enough for some of the newest entrants into the finance world when it means 100-hour work weeks and a goodbye to the old work-life balance. Business Week editor Joel Weber and one of the story's co-writers, Bloomberg News finance reporter Sri Natarajan, stopping by to break down the investment banking wage war. Well, let's go back to the start of the year when this really became an issue. It was the leaked presentation out of Goldman Sachs where 13 first-year analysts put together this report that detailed the rigors of their work life, the 100-hour weeks, um, endless uh, days just working on boring presentations and slide decks again and again and again, and always trying to respond to the demands of the clients irrespective of the time of the day. They outlined a bunch of changes, including you know protected weekends, uh, lesser, lesser hours in a day. Not once did they mention anything about pay. The main complaint at the start of the year wasn't less pay. However, that seems to be the solution that everyone's gravitated towards and crowded around because that's the easiest thing to change. You're in an industry where the banks are always trying to please the client. The client comes up with an idea and wants something at breakfast. You want to make sure that they get a glittering slide deck by lunch. When it is a race to bottom like that, it is very hard to change the fundamentals of their work structure. So the best option that they have at their disposal is a lot of money lying around, throw it in their direction, and hope 
that they don't complain anymore. And as you point out in your piece, Shree, it's basically a rounding error for these companies as far as salaries go. I want to bring in Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us now on the remote from Massachusetts. Joel, as I was reading this piece and, and hearing from veterans in the industry, some big names who are quoted in here, I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, isn't this just part of the life that people signed up for? This is how history majors indeed become billion dollar deal makers. Well, and that's been w- one way that the you know the the industry has has thrived, right? It's sort of this gauntlet that junior bankers go through, and and then you get on the other side, but you know all the ropes, and and this is kind of a rite of passage. And um, yeah, there are some big names in this story: John Mack, Lloyd Blankfein. That that Sri, you know, like Sri does, he just calls up whoever he wants and, and gets great quotes from them. <laughs> uh, and and you know, I think that one of the sentiments there was just like, boy, times have changed. Like there was a moment. In time, in investment banking, not so long ago, um, where this was viewed as something that you just, you know, you stomached and did, and got to the other side, and and you know, you were thankful that you got paid at all. Um, and so, I think it does speak to sort of uh, this generation, but it, you know, it's bigger than that because these are really smart kids, and they could have you know their choice of jobs. And I think what three points out in the story is that, you know, don't forget, like, you can go work in tech and get paid as much as this. So yeah, there's a lot of things these people could be doing that's not working on Wall Street. And, and Wall Street, you know, when, when Wall Street's got a problem, it, it does what Wall Street does, which is, you know, throw money at it. I think that's extremely important what Joel mentioned right there. The big, big, big difference. Yes, you know, the, the perception has been, you know what you're signing up for. You know this is what your life is going to be. But what is the difference between the Wall Street of 2021 and the Wall Street of 1991? 1991, there was no tech industry. There was no real internet to speak of. There was of. no Facebook or Amazon looking no for Facebook, that talent. Facebook, Amazon, Google. So no established big-name tech players looking for that talent. No no potential for great uh, startups that were relying on the internet to suddenly become these multi-billion dollar companies. So if you are the most talented of your graduating class, you would waltz into a job into banking because you knew that after a few years of struggle, it was a lifestyle of corporate jet setting and lavish paydays. It's not the only game in town anymore. When you are the best and everyone's falling over each other to get a hold of you, you have a bunch of options and finance necessarily isn't the number one choice for you. And that is why the banks have to do everything in their ability to make sure that talent still comes towards their way and not just talent, the top talent. Okay, so so there's top talent, and you got to speak to obviously the the max of the blank finds of the world. Uh, can you tell us about the the other guy that you talked to? Yeah, I mean, and again, if you read this story, there is you get the view from the top. You get you get the, the two latest former CEOs of Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, arguably the two most important investment banking franchises out there. But we also spoke to a junior banker uh, who worked at Goldman Sachs until the summer of last year and left. What did he do to cope with the strains? Put on his headset, blasted fake rain noise, went into a bathroom stall in the 32nd floor of 200 West Street, the global headquarters of Goldman Sachs, and took power naps in there. These were stories we read in the Michael Lewis book, Liar's Poker, from years and years and years ago. And yet that is still very much the reality. And he pointed out, look, there's a lot of negative repercussions to it. He wishes there were other changes that people would propose. But because those changes are not easy, you see the pay solution as the one that everyone feels comfortable with, even though they're making all the right noises about work-life balance and being more understanding. 
reality doesn't necessarily reflect that. That was Bloomberg News senior finance reporter Sri Natarajan. He co-wrote this week's cover story. Sri joining us with the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, some companies that have been forging ahead with return to office plans now thinking twice. And on the earnings front, it was a big quarter for one of North America's biggest pet store chains. We're talking about Petco. We'll check in with the company's CEO. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So as we continue to navigate the pandemic, Tim, one corner of the market that continues to thrive is pet care. I have to say, yep, we get bark boxes to our house delivered every month. And throughout the pandemic, as I would walk the street walking my scout, there was tons of Chewy and Petco and you name it boxes on the curbs. Carol, there's a reason that people aren't really called pet owners anymore, right? <laughs> They're called pet parents because they treat their pets like kids. And that means spending more and more money on them. So a little pet in a baby carriage this morning. I'm just going to put <laughs> that's, that out That's there. what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, Ron Coughlin is the chief executive officer for Petco, a leading pet specialty retailer. He joined us to talk all about his company's pet health and wellness ecosystem, the company's most recent earnings report, and also what investors should be expecting going forward. If you look at our e-commerce, our e-commerce was up double digit on top of being up 100% prior quarter. Our two-year stack on e-commerce is up 150%, which is just incredible. But you know, the real thing was there was all these theories that uh, people would shift to online during the lockdown because they had to, and then they wouldn't come back to stores. And our stores were up 17% because people love coming to our pet care centers. Our people are great. They get groomed. They get veterinary care. They get trained there. And it was the return to the stores that was the real, real story. In addition, we also put down another um, 15 veterinary hospitals, bringing our total to 155 hospitals. And wherever we do that, we're seeing a four to five point lift on our merchandise sales. So it's a good good for us. I was just going to ask you how much of because you guys really have pivoted into health and wellness in a big way. And I know here at Bloomberg, we've done a lot of stories about how that is really a growth area for the industry. How much of that ultimately is so key to top and bottom line metrics? Oh, it's the centerpiece. If you look at our portfolio, we've shifted our portfolio to healthier products and more premium products by 10 points in the last three years. Margins better too on this stuff? margins much better in the, in those and I'll come to frozen fresh because that to me is the embodiment mm-hmm. from a food standpoint but one of the first decisions I made was to get rid of artificial ingredients out of all our foods we're still the only out retailer, of everything out of all, we sell no no food no snacks with artificial ingredients we're still the only retailer to do that major retailer to do that then we got rid of shock collars last year so we're dedicated to pet wellness so that helps us from a food standpoint we're uh, a market maker on um, fresh frozen, which, you know, my guy uh, eats uh, yummy, has uh, fish and sweet potatoes. I'd have a lot less <laughs> cholesterol if I did Wait, that's what I had thing. for dinner last night. No, yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's the whole theory, though. <laughs> I know. Human-grade food. And uh, we're the number one retailer for um, for that fresh and fr- fresh frozen space, and we're being market makers on that. What's the growth example. in that particular part of the market? Uh, 50%. 50%. It's supposed to go from $1 billion to $4 billion between now and 2025, and then you get into vet care, right? And uh, we're, we're driving affordable vet care because we want more pets to get the right care. This is for the quarter that ended at the end of July. What can you tell us right now about real-time data with what you're seeing with customer behavior as the Delta variant continues to spread? Sadly, that is true. 
on a good side from our business standpoint, there you see no impact. Foot traffic I have, is the same. I have gone and looked for correlations between COVID and COVID penetrations. And I'll give you a, a real microcosm of it. I, I asked the team to look at Florida. How is our business doing in Florida where the penetration is higher? Florida is outperforming rest of chain right now. So we're not seeing that correlation. And I will tell you, our business um, accelerated on a two-year comp um, in the sec at the end of Q2 and has continued through Q3. So it's very strong and we're not seeing, the only t time we got impacted, quite frankly, sadly, as a New Yorker, was when New York shut down. Then we got impacted because it was pretty much a complete shutdown. Mm -hmm. Nowhere else, nowhere else have we found a correlation between our business. It shifts to more online, back to the pet care centers, but we didn't see a business uh, decline. So are you at all nervous that if New York starts to kind of roll back there, that that would be an impact on your business? If you Again. had the degree of shutdown, but I think at a 50% vax or whatever New York is now, it'd be hard to imagine going back to where that was. Why, why do you think this is? Why, why do you think we're seeing fewer people travel? We're seeing, we anticipate we'll see fewer people eat out in restaurants as they have to you know, show proof of vaccination. Why are they still shopping for their pets? Yeah. Uh, on, in person rather than just online. You know, as the reopening started, I called us, us a uh, unicorn. When people, you know, stayed at home and the family, um, the, the appreciation for family, which was one of the nice things about pandemic, is being at home with your family, spending more time. And pets were central to that. And I think they helped us from an emotional standpoint. I really believe that. But then when we had reopening, all of a sudden you're getting leashes, you're getting leads. But guess what? You're also going back into our pet care centers. And in our pet care centers, you're spending more. And quite frankly, our margins higher we're not shipping to you so we're winners on both sides of, of this thing um, but I, I just think that um, pets were so central to um, human beings making it through this pandemic what about in terms of finding workers is that a problem yeah it's it's a great question um, so it's absolutely a tight market uh, but at the same time we've done a lot of work on our employer value proposition if you will so we've done a lot of work on improving our compensation and benefits we've done a lot of work on our mission we're the only uh, company in our space whose mission is improving lives. You think all the companies do, we're the only one who has a mission of improving lives. For, so for pet lovers who want a great work experience, we're unique. I can say that, but here's the proof of the pudding. Our applications are up 60% since the beginning of the year. Our retention is up. We've never had more groomers working for Petco than we have today. So yes, it's tight, but we feel really good about our ability to navigate. It's been a crazy year to say the least, year and a half. And a lot of times when we have a leader on or a CEO on, we ask about leadership lessons because we didn't have a playbook about any of this. No. I, 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 this year has been unique on two fronts. The first one is, as a leader, ha having to say that the health and wellness of my employees is first and foremost. So you're making decisions real time that affect their health. Are they going to wear masks? Aren't they going to wear masks? Last week, we put vaccination trucks um, in our distribution centers to get people vaccinated. Are they going to wow. take them up or not? And, you know, it was a real moment of truth for us as a leadership team. But I will tell you, lots of people like, to criticize the PE firms, every single decision I made to spend money to take care of our people, they supported. Uh, and when you make the right decisions for your people, guess what happens? Your people are loyal to you. And so we talked earlier about yeah. our, um, our ability to hire. Our retention is up and you get a buzz at your type of company that takes care of people. And it was a real lesson. That's Ron Coughlin, Chief Executive Officer at Petco. Have you
you gotten a pet yet? No, uh, just stuffed animals for oh, come a little on. guy. Goldfish? Uh, nothing right now. Hamster? Uh, one child is enough. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> Maybe in the future. Maybe. All right, coming up, Caroline Hirsch, founder and owner of the Fame Carolines on Broadway on the return of the New York Comedy Festival. Tim, it didn't happen last year because of COVID. Like so much, it was shut down, but it is back. Little return to normalcy, mm-hmm. at least in some sense here in the city and for the comedy community. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. So, Tim, if there's one thing we could all use these days, it's a good laugh. Uh, yeah, laughter's the best medicine, I think is what they say. Such a great cure-all. And uh, we actually caught up with someone who knows a lot about that. She's the most successful businesswoman in comedy, and she's ready to bring some good times back to the Big Apple. Caroline Hirsch is who we're talking about. She's the founder and owner of Caroline's on Broadway. She spoke with you, Carol, all about the long-awaited return of the New York Comedy Festival following that pandemic hiatus. Yes, we're back, and we're happy to be back after we took a break last year and uh, coming back stronger than ever. We announced uh, some of our lineup, which are 17 headliner shows, which then will be followed with over, you know, 200 comedians performing in the festival with 100 shows, which will be announced later on in September. That's a lot. So we're really so, happy. Yeah. And it's, and it's going to be happening in November, correct? A week long. In November 8th through the 14th. So it starts Monday night, November 8th through Sunday night, the 14th. And we're really happy and excited and uh, to get back into business and to... Have some more laughs in New York City. Oh, my God. Bring it on. Yeah. Hey, Caroline, let me ask you. Let me just take a step back, if I may. The past year for comedians, I mean, what has it been like? What have you heard from that community uh, about what it's been like? We know that the higher profile comics or hosts, you know, who are on broadcast, they were able to pivot. But that's not always the case for every comedian. No, lots of the emerging talent that we deal with, you know, they, they weren't working, but a lot of them um, are now so happy. They, they're elated. They're all over the place. I mean, they were working in the streets. They were working wherever they could be heard. Um, they tried to get a job to do that. But now we're, everybody's kind of back in business. Clubs were allowed to open beginning of April. So we're, we've been open. Caroline's been open. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had, you know, like Michael Chase been there every Tuesday night at the club doing a residency. And, you know, he was telling jokes about, you know, during COVID. He said, I had all of this material pent up in me. <laughs> he said, I'd get on a subway and I'd just be talking to people and, you know, telling them jokes on the subway. Which they maybe probably appreciate it. We all could use a, a, a good laugh. That's no doubt about it. Um, tell us too about, uh, remind us what's going on in clubs. We've been doing a lot of stories here at Bloomberg, certainly as restaurants have opened, as venues have opened, that yes, you can come in, but you got to be vaccinated and people okay. are checking. So that will go into effect, I believe in September, that goes, we're doing vaccinated shows. So we're, we're protecting the public. We want to protect our staff. Um, and we're that we're starting now all vaccinated shows, and that's just the way it'll be. Look, look, the clubs and the smaller venues around the United States really suffered. They were shut down. They were mandated to close. And this year during the festival, we really want to highlight a lot of the smaller clubs around the city. So we're going out of our way 
to make sure that everybody participates this year on the festival. So who's going to be there? Can you tell us about some of the headliners? Oh, some of the headliners? Please. Well, Tim Dillon, Michelle Wolf, Norm MacDonald, Ronnie Chang, Mark Marin, Brian Regan, Gary Goldman, Bill Maher will be back, Michelle Bateau, Andrew Santino's a new face for us. So we have lots and lots of great talent um, appearing at, you know, everywhere from Town Hall to the theater at Madison Square Garden. And we're also this year, we're doing something with Citibank. City presents Comedy Included. And we're doing this to bring attention to hear diverse voices in the industry, in the comedy industry. So we'll have a two-day panel going on at Caroline's, all about what's going on in the business. Well, and I do think about, we've had so many different conversations with leaders and heads of companies that it's hard not to, you know, there's no going back to quote unquote normal. You, you know, we've been changed by the pandemic. We've been changed by George Floyd. We've been changed by so much. Um, Comedy always fills that interesting spot that for a while we can't talk about things and then we can. Uh, I think about after 9-11, right? It was really quiet and then we needed humor to come back uh, to help us all find our way back. So how has the past year and a half on so many different levels, I mean, and tough things like COVID, like George Floyd, like inequities, like diversity and inclusion, so many different issues. How has that been incorporated into the festival that's coming up in November? Well, we, like, like I, I said to you, we're, we're doing this two-day event with mm-hmm. City Presents Comedy Included, and we'll have panel discussions, special performances. We'll hear from industry leaders about, you know, bringing attention to, to hearing everybody's voice in comedy, which, you know, comedy is really pretty diverse. I have to say that. And Caroline's has always been on top of that, whether it be female, whether it be, you know, um, uh, gay comedy, whatever it was, it was urban comedy with women. I tried to, I really tried to highlight all of this early, early on. So we're going to do our best to even make it better. That's Caroline Hirsch, the founder and owner of Caroline's on Broadway. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. Wouldn't it be nice if your business was future-proof? Did you see I was channeling a little bit of the Beach Boys? I did. <laughs> Not so well, I guess. Our next guest, though, has a plan for you to ensure you're ready to meet the challenges of an ever-changing market. We're going to wrap up our show with Jonathan Brill, the former global futurist at Hewlett-Packard. He's going to explain how to ride the next, what he calls, rogue wave to success. Looking forward to that. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So over the last 17 months, yeah, we've seen some businesses thrive. Others have been unable to adapt to evolving market conditions or at least not do it fast enough. And our next guest has a playbook to help you prepare your business for what he calls the undercurrents of radical systemic change. I feel like we need a dun, dun, dun. I think we do too, but you just did it. So we're, we're set. He's the former global futurist at Hewlett Packard. He's also the author of Rogue Waves, Future Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change. Jonathan Brill joined us on the day that his book came out to talk all about being ready to embrace emerging technologies, changing demographics, the data economy, automation, and more. So you've probably heard of, of a black swan event. These are completely unpredictable things that come out of nowhere. And often CEOs use this as an excuse. But the reality is that most uh, radical disruptions are more knowable than you might imagine. Hmm. They're what I call rogue waves. They're unmanageable 100-foot waves of change that are caused by the collision of individually manageable disruptions. I mean, when you think about something like COVID, uh, the, the fall of Kabul, the floods in 
Germany or China over the last uh, couple of months. They're important, but what really amplified them was waves of social, economic, and technological change. And that's actually what the disruption is, right? We opened up after, after the last round of COVID, and we're now seeing a bit of a resurgence as a result of that. It's all of the things around the pandemic that are causing the impact, not just the pandemic itself. And the same is true of opportunities. Uh, over the last couple of years, uh, we've seen this explosion of mRNA vaccines, for instance. Uh, the, the fall of Kabul is going to create opportunities, maybe not for the United States, but for China, for uh, which is searching for rare earth resources, which mm-hmm. are common in Afghanistan. And the flooding uh, in Asia and the miscalculation of the likelihood of these 100-year, 1,000-year floods is going to create great rebuilding opportunities for some construction companies. And so for the, the, the lesson here is that a lot of times when you have volatility, when you have disruption, uh, it's a threat for some people, but it's an opportunity for the ones that are prepared. So the question isn't, uh, how do I respond to, uh, how, how do I understand and predict every rogue wave? It's, how do I respond when these things hit my business, when they, when they hit my finances, my operations, they change my external environment, or maybe they impact my strategy. If you don't know what that rogue wave will be, there's only so much you can do to prepare for it, right? Let's take COVID, for example. And let's say you're yeah. Jeff Bezos, who was running Amazon until last month. He didn't know that he had to get so much PPE to provide to frontline workers or know that there would be a very rapid expansion and growth of, of, of Amazon grocery delivery or Whole Foods grocery delivery, for example. Um, or did he, right? Well, what he knew, uh, be, I've spent some, some time with uh, leaders at Amazon. What they knew was uh, they had a really good systems model of their organization and they knew exactly how hard they could push or pull the, the levers. And so the issue wasn't that they were ready for a pandemic. They didn't pull out their COVID playbook. They were really ready for everything. Most companies really look internally at, at the things they can control, whether it's their uh, finances uh, or their operations. But the reality is most of the things that cause sustained impact on business value are external and strategic. So the question is, uh, how would you respond when any of the major uh, uh, risk levers are, are hit or, or when they're hit in different combinations. And one of the things that, that Amazon's particularly good at and uh, that I'm an advocate of is gaming out what are those possibilities, pressure testing your organization, mm. uh, asking what would happen if something unimaginable hit us. Because at the end of the day, Amazon had a really good year. And it was because they weren't ready. It wasn't because they were ready for COVID. It was because they were ready for anything. Jonathan, I I want to talk about this, the framework that you developed in this book, the resilient growth strategy. Um, You call it the ABCs of resilient growth. Take us through it. Yeah. So when we think about companies that are consistently profitable through uh, radical changes like uh, like COVID, uh, what we see is that they have consistent characteristics, what I call the ABCs of resilient growth, awareness. Uh, If your people don't know why they need to change, obviously they're not going to do that. So you need to focus on improving awareness of the operating environment through the organization. You need to focus on behavior. It doesn't really matter uh, if your people know that a tsunami is coming. If they don't have the skills 
to respond. And so the question really is, do your managers at all levels have the ability to make sense of, increase resilience to, and exploit radical change? And then the C in the ABCs is about uh, creating a culture. You know, do you have the processes and incentives to encourage uh, employees to make decisions that balance both near-term performance and long-term growth? If they, if they don't, if you don't, obviously they won't. And so when you wrap that up, you get a, a recipe for a more resilient organization. We were talking earlier about a company like Amazon, and uh, you know this is true for them, but it's also true for a farmer that I work with in Ohio. Mm. Well, that's what I wanted to talk about, because not everybody is in charge of making decisions at a company like Amazon or in charge of a team even and has to prepare a team for a, a rogue wave. What are some lessons that that people can take away from this who are managers, who are employees who are looking to become managers? What are their takeaways? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, first of all, you're, you're right. Not everybody can be in charge of everything, but you can have uh, provide clarity clarity around what I call risk bands. So this is a simple thing when you uh, ask somebody to do something. Tell them how much risk you want them to take, but also tell them how little that you'll accept. If you don't give that a bump at the bottom, you know, inevitably people will take the least risky path forward as opposed to perhaps the best path forward or, or the, the one that you can accept. What, do you, what about when it comes to, to people who are looking just for their own leadership lessons here and how to lead through turbulent times? That's a great question. So uh, one of the things we talked about in the book, and there are hundreds of ideas like this, is a communication method for uh, leading un under uncertainty. When you're not the boss, huh. how do you talk to people in a way that you'll be heard? First, you, you uh, it's what I call the lead method. And first you say, here's the logic of what I'm suggesting. The second is about empathy, saying, hey, you know, I understand you might have a different perspective. You might have different goals. I understand where you're coming from. Let me just double check on that. The third is authority, right? Even if I'm not the boss, why do I have some experience in this situation? And why might I be the person to listen to? The fourth, the D in lead, is about the deadline, right? How long do we have to make a decision? We can decide who's going to do what for however long. But at the end of the day, by Tuesday, we actually need to close out on this because if not, there will be an issue moving forward. So if you just take those four pieces of information, logic, empathy, authority, and deadline, you inoculate against most of the things, most of the political issues that more senior managers might use against you or uh, that might cause you to not be heard as a more junior employee when you see kind of that iceberg on the horizon. Well, uh, speaking of the iceberg on the horizon, I think a, a lot of people are thinking about, okay, well, the pandemic, yes, that is something that we need to be prepared for, the next pandemic, perhaps, or the continued evolution of this current pandemic. Um, how do we get, what are the other types of shocks that companies need to be prepared for? What are those, what are those unknowns? That's a great question. And, and I think one of the, in the book we talk about 10 major disruptions that are happening over the next decade. Uh, when it was at HP, we spent several million dollars researching the range of possible issues every year. Was one of those a pandemic? Them down. Uh, one of them was, was actually a pandemic. It's in the SEC risk filings. Uh, we've announced 
some some uh, businesses that are coming out of that research in our mm. microfluidics business, uh, and and we've been really looking at work from home technologies and how we could uh, shift the the nature of the business, uh, not necessarily for COVID, but as, if something like this happens relatively quickly. The result of that is if you take a look at Xerox over the last year and their EPS versus uh, HPs, HPs has been relatively stable versus Xeroxes being down, uh, I think, last year, something like 69% by gap. So the result is, you know, if you take a look at those two companies that should be pure companies have radically different results because one of them took a resilient growth strategy and thought really hard about rogue waves, and one of them, I believe at least, uh, optimized for the near term. What was the moment over the last 18 months when you realized you needed to write a book about this? That's a great question. Uh, I'm passionate about uh, what's possible, uh, kind of breakthrough questions. And I had a moment, uh, you know, last year, uh, I guess 18 months ago about this time, where I realized I knew these things. They had, they had unique knowledge and we had to uh, we had to get ahead of the future as a society, as, a, as companies and leaders. That was former global futurist at HP, Jonathan Brill. His new book, Rogue Waves, Future-Proof Your Business to Survive and Profit from Radical Change, is out now. And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevag. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also see me at Bloomberg Quick Take, available at Bloomberg.com slash QT, and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.